Well, good morning. My name is Nick Schatz. I'm one of the pastors here, the executive pastor at Hershey Free Church. And so welcome to church today. I have some really cool uh, announcements to make, especially after an awesome song like that. We have some new family members in the family of Hershey Free Church. And so here are some of their pictures in the screen. And if you are in the audience and you're on the screen, would you just wave your hands around a little bit? Hey, all right, we have some here, yeah. So some new members, I'm going to read their names out loud. Tracy Allen, Chris and Raya Blackwell, Steve and Avery Conway, Megan Houck, Lauren Popek, Danielle Taylor, and Peggy Taylor. Okay, so make sure that you greet them. If you see them, if you know them, give them a hug, a high five, something like that, and uh, tell them welcome to the family. So uh, anyway, that's exciting news. We're going to move into the message today, and we've been going through the book of Habakkuk. So if you have an electronic version, a print version of the Bible, whatever uh, you have with you, go ahead and open that out. You can also pick up one of the Bibles in the pews, and I think we have a page number too for you to go to. It's a, a smaller book of the Bible, so a little more difficult to find. Uh, I'm stalling so to help you find it because we're going to read uh, quite a few verses to put it in comparison. George spoke from about three verses last week, and this is about 16, so it's a little longer. Now, I was taught in preacher school. They... Yeah, I was taught in preacher school that if you have a long text, you're not supposed to read the whole thing because people have short attention spans nowadays, you're going to lose them. But my professors didn't know you folks. You folks are intelligent, you have the attention span of, I don't know, I can't think of an analogy, but you have a long attention span, and you got an extra hour of sleep last night, so you're going to be able to follow along. So if Habakkuk chapter 2, and we're going to look in verse number 4. And again, while you're looking for chapter 2 and verse 4, uh, what happens in, in verse 4 is that God, God is speaking to Habakkuk here, and I'll go into more of, of kind of the storyline of Habakkuk. God is speaking to Habakkuk, and he makes this comparison. And he compares the nation of Babylon, this, this wicked, this evil nation, this godless nation, idolatrous nation, to the nation of Judah, which is where Habakkuk lives. And I'll talk, again, I'll talk more about that, but there's a comparison made. Look at verse 4. He says, see the enemy, that's, that's Babylon, of course, is puffed up, his desires, and if you're in the habit of underlying, circling, circling things, go ahead and underline that word desires. His desires are not upright. On the other side, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. And if you were here last week, if you missed, go online. It's a great sermon, but uh, George talked about the second part of the verse. We're going we're gonna to backtrack and we're going to talk about that, that first comparison, that Babylonian comparison. The enemy is puffed up and this kind of thing. Verses 5 through 20 goes into basically a rebuke against the nation of Babylon. So let, let me read that and with very brief commentary in between. Verse number 5, indeed, again speaking of Babylon, wine betrays him. He is arrogant, never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself <clears throat> all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, and at this point we go into these, these five woes, the word woe or alas or aha or I got you back, something like that. It's, it's this taunt, it's this scorn. Five woes come up in the rest of this, this uh, chapter. So the end of verse 6, woe, woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors arise suddenly? Will not they wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations, the people who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. And then the second woe comes up in the next verse. Woe, verse 9. Woe to him 
who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Verse 12 is the next woe, the third woe. Woe to him, verse 12, who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? Now, now look at verse 14. Just circle verse 14 or however you want to mark that in your Bibles. It's, it's the one good verse in the whole chapter. It's the one shimmer of light. Look at verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord in the same way that the waters cover the sea. Okay? Verse 15, we return to the woes, to the negativity, to the darkness of Babylon. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will not, or sorry, will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood and you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. And then in verse 18, we start the fifth woe. It comes up in verse 19, but this, this new chapter of, or new section of a woe against idolatrous living. Verse 18, of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life or to lifeless stone. Wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There's no breath in it. And then verse 20 is the, the climax. It's the conclusion of, of this whole dark and dreary woe section of chapter 2. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. So when I was a child, my stepdad had this, this annoying habit that bugged me to no end. And he would do this, especially on Saturday and Sunday, the weekends, he would always do this. And it, I, I couldn't stand when he would do this. But he would walk into the living room and he would look at the couch and he would take a deep breath and he would utter these words. He would say, I need to rest my eyes. And I couldn't stand it when he said that. I, I, and I would instantly just repel against that and recoil and say, no, no, you can't take a nap now. We're, we were about to go to that place or we were about to go to the burger joint and get, get burgers and fries or, or we were about to go to the arcade. Remember when the arcades were a big thing? I guess now we have all the Pac-Man and stuff on our phone. But we were going to go to the arcade or, or we were going to play, uh, you know, Mario on the Nintendo. We were, we were going to do all this. And you can't take a nap now. Come on, it's 3 in the afternoon. The sun lights out. It's a nice day. And he would always throw his hands up and say, whoa, I, I'm not taking a nap. I'm just going to rest my eyes. Now, all of you knew exactly what resting one's eyes means. It means to take a nap. That's what he's going to do. And he said, no, it's going to be 10 minutes. I'm just going to rest my eyes, whatever this figurative language means. And, and it ended up being an hour, sometimes an hour and a half. And inevitably, after the hour had passed, the daylight was gone, the time to ride bikes was gone. The time to go to the, the arcade was, was gone. Or mom would shout, you know, dinner's ready. And, you know, the rule was you don't do video games after dinner. And so I, I, just, I just knew that, man, the, my weekend has been completely wasted because of eye resting. And I, it, would, it would bug me to no end. And I made this vow. I made this vow. I said, I will never say this to my kids. 
I am never going to be that guy that needs a nap in the middle. Because the next step is walking with a cane, right? I said, I'm, I said I'm, not, I'm not going to be this guy. So yesterday, my wife's over here. She, she can verify this. So yesterday, I had made this vague promise to my kids that we would ride bikes. And I always try to be vague with everything because I feel like if I ever nail anything down, it's like, it's, it's like the 11th commandment. I got to do it now. I don't know. So can we go on a bike ride tomorrow? Maybe, probably. For, you know, I try, to, I try to leave wet cement everywhere because it's like uh, I've created some injustice or something. If I, so, so I probably, most likely will do that. Well, 3 o'clock rolls around, and I don't know. I don't know about you guys, but at 3 o'clock, my body just kind of shuts down. My mind stops working. I go into a slump. I just I don't want to adult anymore. I, I'm done adulting at 3 o'clock. I just kind of slow down. Do any of you have that similar thing? Like five of you. Okay, so... I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting old, I guess, and my kids think that at least. They think I'm ancient. And so I said, guys, I, I, need to, I need to rest my eyes. And as soon as I said it, I thought, no, no, I've become my old man. I, this, is, this cannot be happening. It, I, the self-loathing began. However, I wasn't, I wasn't annoyed with myself enough to not take a nap. I still took a nap. And, and, I, and we didn't get to the bike ride. I told the kids, probably tomorrow. It's going to probably, maybe, likely. You know, I tried to do the, the, the half-promise game. Uh, but I think all of us have parents that had annoying habits that, that we end up seeing in ourselves. Don't, 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 you, don't you have those things that your parents did? You said, I'm never going to do that, and you end up doing it. And in a broader way, I think all of us look at certain people and say, man, I can't believe they do such and such. Maybe it's an annoying habit, or maybe it's actually a self-destructive mindset or a self-destructive practice that they do, and they say, man, I can't believe they do that. And then a little time passes by, and we realize that we were actually looking in the mirror when we were looking at them. Because don't we do this? Don't we see things in other people that we say, I can't believe they act that way or think that way or, or do those certain things. And, and then we end up self-prophesying these things. We end up carrying those out ourselves. Well, we're going to see this principle applied in the book of Habakkuk. And so Habakkuk was a prophet who lived during uh, the Judean empire. So just to give you a little bit of history here. The nation of Israel, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, God's people, the nation of Israel, right? Uh, they fell into apostasy and idolatry and all these bad practices. They strayed from their God. Civil war actually broke out and the kingdom split into two separate kingdoms, right? The northern kingdom became, uh, kept the name of Israel, right? And then the southern kingdom became known as Judah. Yes, Judah, very good. And so Habakkuk lives in, in Judah right now and he's basically dissatisfied with what's going on around him and the way that people don't worship Yahweh the way that they used to, and it's, it's infuriating to him. And so he prays to God and says, how, how long is this going to happen? Why, why are you not doing anything to correct, uh, to correct your people, to correct the people of Judah? And so this dialogue happens in the book of Habakkuk. The first half is Habakkuk asking God why. And then the second half of chapter one, God responds and says, oh, I'm, I am doing something. I am going to fix this. Let me, you might not like it, but here's what I'm going to do. So the Babylonian Empire, you know, they pillage other nations. They go and they uh, ransack other smaller Mesopotamian cities. They expand their borders. They make the other nations become citizens of Babylon. They're, they're, coming, to, they're coming to a city near you, in other words. They're going to come to Judah, and, and this is, you're going to be taken away as, as captives. You're going to be taken away and turned into Babylonian citizens. And so at the very end of chapter 1, Habakkuk throws his hands up and says, uh, I did not... That's, that's not the answer I was expecting. Why? And then in chapter 2, God begins to go into some of these things. 
and he answers this. And here, here's really how he starts it. Verse, verse 4, Habakkuk 2.4, let's read that again. He says, see the enemy. He's explaining what's going on. The enemy has puffed up his desires. The, chapter 2 goes into this, this bloodshed, into this violence, and to some of the policies that Babylon had for taking over other nations. It's, it's very dark. It's very gloomy. Sorry, but this is the text for today. It's, it's, it's very dark. But God says it's all, it all comes from their desires. Their desires is what is fueling them to act in this way. Their desires and the things that are going on inside of them are the reason that they, they wrote these conquering policies this way and the reason that Nebuchadnezzar is so driven to throw his armies out and to conquer other nations and to suck them up into the nation of Babylon. However, what's interesting to me and to scholars as well is when you read chapter 2, Babylon doesn't come up. Or the Chaldeans, that's another name for the, for the Babylonians. That doesn't come up. Nebuchadnezzar's not mentioned. These nations are never mentioned. In fact, some scholars go back and forth and say, wait, is he really talking about Babylon? I mean, it's pretty clear that that's really who he's talking about. However, it's interesting that the name never comes up. And I want to read, uh, Wilda Gaffney is a scholar. I want to read something that she wrote in a commentary. She says, one wonders at a prophet who was bold enough to demand answers of God and then questions the response that he gets but shrinks at naming the nation about whom he is prophesying. And I believe this is the reason why it doesn't, it's not very clear who he's talking about because Habakkuk is writing this and people are reading this and God's intention is that they say, wait a second, are we talking about the desires of Babylon or are we talking about Judah or, or, or is he talking about things that are going on inside of me? And so we're going to see today that Babylon's problem is actually my problem. Judah's hope is actually my hope. And the Lord's rebuke, verse 20, the climax of all this, that's, that's actually for me as well. All of this is written for, not just for Babylon, but for Judah and for Habakkuk and for you and I. So let's dive right in. Uh, number one, point number one, Babylon's problem is my problem. Babylon's problem is my problem. Listen to this quote from Larry Osborne. Babylon is the personification of evil. <clears throat> Even at the end of human history, it is still, it still is, uh, represent to the angelic host the worst of the worst. Nothing will ever reach its depth of depravity. Not Al-Qaeda, not Mexican drug lords, not the Tower of Babel, not Sodom, not Gomorrah, not even Nazi Germany. And you see throughout the entire Bible, Babylon becomes this personification of the, the quintessential of evilness. In fact, long before Babylon really existed as this superpower, as this nation, way back in Genesis, I think it's chapter 12, it's in the early part, there's this people that gather together to rebel against God and to create their own gods. And they build this big tower, this big structure that's supposed to go into, into the heavens, into the atmosphere, so that they can meet their false gods halfway. And, and they end up calling this tower the tower, the tower, of, tower of Babel. It represents what these people are doing and this pride and this selfishness and this, this, this insecurity that they have. It represents that. And then all throughout the Old Testament especially, the prophets are always talking about Babylon and what Babylon represents. And the kings of Judah, the kings of Israel, they're always just petrified of Babylon because Babylon's always coming, right? Even way into the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, it's this futuristic book, Babylon comes up. Now, when Revelation was written, Babylon was, was long gone. I mean, they, Persia had come and conquered them and then Rome came. and so per, Babylon's long gone, but this angel comes down, this is prophecy of what's going to happen in the future, and right before Jesus comes for the second time to set up his eternal reign, this angel shouts out, Babylon the great is fallen. Of course, Babylon is actually long gone at this point. However, what Babylon represents 
is going to be fallen in that day. And all through the Bible, Babylon represents, again, the quintessential of, of evil. It's the worst people, uh, the, the, the worst inner things that people can be, if I can word it that way. <clears throat> and so here's why Habakkuk and everybody, especially Judah, is so scared of Babylon. Look at verse 5. Because he is greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar was the original pinky in the brain. <laughs> Thank you. The first service, nobody got that. So I'm glad that, but hey, King Nebuchadnezzar, what are we going to do tomorrow? We're going to try to take over the world. Exactly. And, and that, that was his, that was his uh, mode of operation, right? And honestly, this, this is probably honestly what was going on. There's a bunch of white-collar people sitting in an office somewhere writing policies about how to take over other nations and how to take over their resources in the least destructive way with the least casualties from war. Here's how we bring them over and integrate them into our society so that we can get them working and tax them. And I mean, it was just all a bunch of policy writing for the Babylonians so they could expand their borders. They would get to inherit all the, the wood and the land and the resources and the wild animal and the wine and the grain and, and everything that comes from these nations. They could create, especially with Judah, they could create kind of a buffer zone against Egypt, which was the, the, the second, I guess, the second superpower, the second nation that might be able to attack Babylon. And so, so it was just policy writing and how can we become the greatest and the best and conquer other nations with the least amount of frustration. And so that's, that's just kind of how they operated. However, read verse, look at verse 9 with me. Verse 9, we're going to skip to 11. Woe to him who builds his house with evil gain. And then look at verse 11. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork will respond. <clears throat> it's, it's, an, it's an analogy. It's not literal. You, you have to realize that Babylon is, they're finding these smaller nations and just marching their army in. I mean, it's, it's easy peasy for them. They march their army in, they take over the capital, whatever, they bring everybody back. They, they go to some small Mesopotamian city, they overtake it, they expand their borders. It's, it's, they do this over and over. They've been doing this for years, right? And the, the, the imagery is that they are building this house. They take a nation and they bring those people and they set them up as here's a brick and here's, here's a beam, here's a foundation for this house. And, and, and they're building this house with other nations. And the picture is that a guy goes into his house that he has built. He sits down on his couch and he leans back and twiddles his thumbs and he hears, he hears crying. He hears screaming. He hears, it's like somebody's taunting him and yelling at him and saying, whoa, woe to you, woe to you. And he looks around and he puts his ear over to the wall and it's the beams within the wall that are shouting at him. It's the floor, that it's his refrigerator, everything. The house is shouting at him, begins to shake and then it crumbles down on top of him. That's, that's the imagery that is being portrayed in verses 9 through 11. <clears throat> Here, here's why this is significant for us. As you read through chapter 2, these, these desires that I talked about from verse 4, they begin to show themselves. There's this desire for greed. There's, here's a big one, this insecurity. This insecurity comes up, this, this, this pride, this selfishness. All these desires that, if we're honest, we kind of operate by many of these things that go on inside of our own head. How are people going to perceive me? And, and why am I so driven to success? And it's the, same, it's the same things that we're driving Babylon to just, let's keep conquering. We got to keep conquering. And eventually the house begins to shake and crumble and fall down because of the foundation on which <clears throat> it was built. Verse 5 again, he is greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. This is a picturing a graveyard where there's always room for one more casket, right? You can never fill up this graveyard. There's this emptiness, this dissatisfaction. And this greed culminates in verses 18 and 19 with the building of idols. He says, of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman? 
Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to stone, wake up. And all the prophets talk about this idolatry from Babylon as if to say, can you not see the futility? You, you, you chop down a tree, and with half of the tree, you, you, you carve and, and you split and you, and you slice this wood into, into this idol, into this structure, into this image that meets whatever the need is. You know, this is my idol for fill in the blank. I want more fill in the blank, so I'm going to chop down a tree, I'm going to build an idol with it, and with the other half of the tree, I'm going to chop into wood and burn with the fire. Did, can't you see the futility there? And I know that we, we think, oh, that's ridiculous, I would never do that, but I mean, don't, we do, don't we do the same things? I mean, we, we build our own things that we find our significance and value on that is kind of, kind of ridiculous, is it not? Because a lot of what we do is actually fueled by this insecurity that we have inside of us. <clears throat> David Foster Wallace uh, wrote this way. And I'm not even sure if he's a Christian, but, but he, wrote this about, he wrote about worship. And this is what he said. He said, anything that you worship besides your God will eat you alive. He said, if you worship money and things, they are where you tap your real meaning in life, then you'll never feel that you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a thousand deaths as wrinkles and fatigue begins to take over. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll need ever more power over others to numb you over to your own fear. Worship your intellect or being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of, of being found out. And he says that all of this is not a conscious choice. In fact, it's unconscious. He says it's, it's this gradual worship of self, that it's, it's this self-worship that gradually, day by day, getting more and more selective about what we see and how we measure value without being fully aware of what this is doing to us. And in verse number, nine, verse number nine, he really parks on this insecurity that Babylon has. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape. It's this, this, this image, another image like the house of, of this bird who is building a nest and doesn't want the, the bears and whatever, I don't know, whatever else eats birds and eggs to, to, to get to them. And so it builds it in the highest nest and tries to build the tree up higher and higher. So nobody, Egypt and Persia, nobody can touch me now because I'm in this, it's this insecurity. That's why they keep doing this. And if we're honest, part of the reason that I preach the way they do, part of the reason people sing the way they do, part of the reason that you pursue your career in the way that you do or the way that you spend your time, or the way that you earn your money, the way that you do your art, the way that you play your music, the, the, the reason that we do many of the things we do is driven by insecurity a lot of the times. And so I think Habakkuk is like me. He, he's praying and saying, God, can you hand me your binoculars so I can look at Babylon? That's a mirror, not binoculars, and he gets upset, right? <laughs> so I think the purpose of chapter 2 is for us to see that, wait, he's, he's not talking about Babylon. He's talking about Judah. He's talking about... Habakkuk, he's talking about me. And if I'm honest, I think if I was sitting on Nebuchadnezzar's throne, I don't know that I would act much differently than, than him because the same things that are inside of his heart are ultimately inside of my heart. And so he culminates all this in verse 20, and he says, uh, God is speaking. <clears throat> he says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. He wants Habakkuk to stop the questions, to stop the prayers, not that they were bad in the first place, but to stop them just for a moment, to be silent and to see what God is trying to say to him by what is going on around him. <clears throat> so Babylon's problem is actually my problem. And then secondly, Judah's hope is my hope. Judah's hope is my hope. 
Look at verse 14. Smack in the middle of, of, of all this bad stuff, all this doom, all this gloom, all this darkness, right in the middle of all of it is verse 14. Again, the only positive verse in the entire chapter. He says, for the Lord, or sorry, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. One day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord in the same way that the sea is covered with water. And, and so different Bible writers describe this with different ways. They describe it as the day of the Lord or the kingdom of heaven or the, the, the kingdom of God. They describe it in this way in which Jesus will come again. He will come for the second time. He will not be crucified this time. He will not need to be resurrected this time. Instead, he will revolutionize all of our hearts. He will change all of our hearts. So all the stuff that comes up in chapter 2 will be done, the, the greed and the, and the insecurity, all that stuff's going to be gone. And he is going to rule this world as the kingdom of God, this, this perfect place again. I, I heard one writer describe this as, as Disneyland. I was very disappointed by that, by the way. <laughs> Don't call this, 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 hopefully this is much better than, than that. But all the violence, the bloodshed, the, the broken relationships, the abuse, the idolatry, the insecurity, the hate, everything that comes up in chapter 2 one day will be completely eradicated when Jesus comes again and sets up his eternal kingdom and sets up his eternal throne on this earth. We're not there yet, of course. In the meantime, here's God's expectation for us. His expectation is that you and I would be the verse 14 that's tucked away in a chapter 2 of woes upon woes. His intention for Judah is that they would be little drops of water, even though the waters are not covered with the knowledge of the Lord. His intention is that Judah and Habakkuk and you and I would be little drops of water scattered all over the place, that, that in some partial way, that in some small way, are changing things in little ways, incremental ways, to bring about the kingdom of God in our own life and to show what is going on there. Now, we need to pause for a second. It's football season. I'll say timeout. I need to do a timeout just for a second and say this. Now, a lot of people... When they read stuff like this, they, they like to, to make labels for modern-day nations. And, oh, America must be like Judah. And uh, China's been doing such and such, so they must be Babylon. Or, or Russia's always hacking our elections, so they must be Babylon. Or North Korea, they got the missiles going on. They, they must be Babylon. They make all these comparisons. And I have to say, you, you, can't, you can't do that, okay? I do feel the need to say, don't go there. Don't do that because it's not fair. It's not accurate. It's not helpful. And in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if there's somebody in China right now worshiping God saying, America's like Babylon. They're putting all these tariffs on us and stuff. I mean, so so you, you, can't, you can't do that. It's not fair, and it's not, it's not what the chapter is trying to tell us. On the other hand, you also cannot compare America completely to Babylon. It's just, it's not helpful. So, okay, timeout is ceased. You can resume your normal broadcasting at this moment. Here is what is helpful. Putting yourself in Habakkuk's shoes and saying, what would I be feeling? What would I be thinking if this is what God was saying to me? Because God is, he, he is saying this to you and to me. And so <clears throat> what would I do if I, was, if I was a man or a woman that was over the age of 50 and I, I knew this news, I, I heard this news that Babylon was coming, they were going to take over. It's not going to happen in my lifetime. It might happen in my kid's lifetime. It will definitely happen in my grandkids' lifetime. How does that change the way I interact with them day to day now? How does that change the stories I tell them? How does that change the wisdom that I pass down to them, knowing that they're going to grow up in a world much different than the one I grew up in? How does that change things? It's helpful for me to say, okay, let's assume that I'm a young man or a young woman, knowing that the capital of Jerusalem was just overtaken, the Judean army just surrendered, and the bus shows up tomorrow to take me and my friends and my family off to Babylon to be scattered into the various regions throughout the empire. What does that make me think and feel? How am I going to go into this new culture, this new society, 
where everything is different. There's no expectation that they're going to pray in school or anything. I mean, why would I have that expectation of this Babylon that I'm going into? How am I going to live my life in such a way that I remain faithful to Yahweh, but I'm also not walking around griping about how evil Babylon is all the time? In fact, one of the false, one of the false prophets in the Bible, Hananiah, he said, when, you go into, when, when Babylon comes, when you go into Babylon, do not become acclimated to their society. Do not, bow to, do not change your minds. And the other prophets with Habakkuk were saying the opposite message. Jeremiah, Daniel, no, no, no. When you go into Babylon, become integrated. Love this society that you're in. Love these people that you were with. Become part of that culture because he wants them to ultimately change the culture. And I'll put it this way. God was sneaky with this one, wasn't he? He's using Babylon to come in and change Judah's heart and draw them back to God. He's also using Judah to infiltrate the empire of Babylon with all these little communities of faith spread throughout the entire Babylonian empire. And we see this when the New Testament comes around. We see there's these little pockets. George talked about this last week. These little pockets of synagogues and and God followers all throughout the empire. And then, of course, he does it again. God is a God of repetition. He does it again when, when Jesus does come. He's crucified. He's resurrected. And persecution hits the church of Jerusalem. And they can't understand it. They don't know what's going on. So the church of Jerusalem scatters all throughout the Roman Empire. And the same thing happens. All of a sudden, there's these little churches planted all over the Roman Empire. This is, God is using Babylon to change Judah. He's using Judah to change Babylon. And he's using our society to change us. He's using us to change our society as well. God is at work, and that's why he finishes in verse 20 with, the Lord is on his holy throne. In other words, he, he, he knows what he's doing. This is part of his plan. Let all the earth be silent before him so that you can see what is going on. Babylon's problem is my problem. Judah's hope is my hope. And then number three, the Lord's rebuke is my rebuke. Again, let me read verse 20. <clears throat> The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. The Lord is in his holy temple. It's just this this picture of Jesus as judge and not scared and in full control of what's going on. So I'm sitting in Coco Diner and trying to enjoy my Reuben sandwich. And that's when it happened. This fiasco happens where... One kid reaches over and grabs a handful of fries from the other kid's plate and begins to stuff it in. And, and the other kid gets upset and, and gives a swift elbow to the second kid. And, and, and then the first kid goes back and begins to do a swift push. And then the slapping starts and the screaming starts and the whining starts. And all of a sudden, Coke is spilled. And, and these fries that were once greasy and good are now just carbonated and sugary and, 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 and soggy. And, and the meal is ruined. And, 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 and it's embarrassing. The entire Coco Diner in Hummelstown is, is looking. And, and so... So as a dad, I knew, what, I knew what my role was. I knew I had to establish justice here and take things into my own hands. So, so I take the kids, I grab them by the ears, and I drag them outside. And, and I take them outside, and I give them a good scorning. I use the fingers. I mean, I do everything. I'm pointing, and I'm saying this is unacceptable. I give them a swift and controlled swat to the bottom. I say, supper is over. There's absolutely no dessert. You are punished. You're grounded, et cetera, et cetera. I send them back in. I did my fatherly duty, did I not? Until the cops arrived. And then they pulled me outside and began to question me. And then the cuffs went on my hands. And then I was transported and spent the night in jail. Apparently, there's this law that you cannot punish other people's children. You can only punish your own children. These were children in the booth. 
These were children in the booth, two, two booths away from me. Obviously, this story is completely false, and my wife is proof because she would have killed me long before the cops arrived. But the moral of the story is this, that judgment always begins with the parents' own children. And this is the story spiritually and in the Bible as well, that judgment always begins with God's own people. And so Jesus, God says, I'm sitting on my holy temple. And you can't, and you can't it's, it's not fair, a fair assessment to say, why are you allowing Babylon to do such and such and you're punishing us? And Jesus says, I'm, I'm sitting on my holy throne. Let all, all the earth, including my people and including not my people, be silent before me. Silence is how he closes this. Silence is not just for librarians. It's for us. And so I would encourage you to take your regrets and set them on a raft in the river and just watch them float by. Take your, your sins, take uh, the pressures of your work, set them on a rafter and let them float down the river and just disappear for at least a little while. Take, take your family and your friends and take uh, everything going on in your life. Take Even silence is not just solitude and being alone. It's about silencing the inner chatter in your own mind. And just, just set that on a rafter, let it float down the river and remain in silence. And it's in those times that God can can speak to us and he can reveal to us what he is doing with what's going on around us. Let me, let me finish with this quote. I read about one guy who, uh, he's a professor now, but he spent seven years in a monastery as a monk and he described silence in this way because it was, of course, mandatory for them. He described silence as the slow but steady uncorking of a bottle whose contents have for too long been under extreme pressure. He wrote, every experienced monk I've ever come to know has confirmed that you enter the monastery to find God, but you end up finding yourself. The silence of the monastery strips away all the distractions with which you preoccupied yourself in secular life. And for the first time, you were confronted with yourself, your true self, in all your messy brokenness. Let's pray together. Father, in, in moments of silence, I pray that you would show us what you want us to see. I pray that you would enable us to look around at the world around us and to, to interpret that through your lens. And in these times of silence, that we would silence the inner chatter in our own mind and, and see what you want to show us and what you want to reveal to us. And Father, I pray that you would use me to be the verse number 14 in a chapter of woes. I pray that you would use all of these people to be little drops of hope, little shimmers of light, little drops of water dispersed all over this area to, to bring about the kingdom of God in, uh, in some way. And so use us in that way and speak to us even in this moment of silence. Amen.